She left everything she knew and entered a world few have ever seen to save a wondrous creature from the cruelty of men. She went further than anyone dared. Some say she went too far. September 23rd, 1988 is when Gorillas of the Mist hit theaters, just three years after the real Diane Fossey's death. The movie follows Fossey, played by Sigourney Weaver, as she leaves the United States for Africa, where she studies the gorillas of Rwanda and Uganda. As Fossey develops a bond with the animals, she also becomes wary of poachers who prey on them, aware of enemies that she makes from protecting the animals that she loves, feeling the gorillas will go extinct if humans continue to hunt them. She organizes a defiance league to protect the animals, and in doing so, she puts herself in a journey of danger and risk. In the 1988 film, Gorillas in the Mist. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your host Antonio of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. always be critiquing Gene Siskel and I will be critiquing Roger Ebert. Now, Antonio, this is a movie that Siskel and Ebert were actually split on. And this is a movie that seems to have been lost and in hiding away in the jungle for over the years. And I know I had to dust my copy off from my collection. I know you had to go on a treasure hunt for your copy. But after a revisit, to this film, there are a lot of thoughts from my viewing years ago to now, but I also found both the reviews of Siskel and Ebert probably the most reasonable in their arguments as well. What are your thoughts? You know, I think uh, after last week's dispute <laughs> over Seems Like Old Times, we might uh, bury the hatchet on this one because I, I agree on this one. My history with this movie is I saw it right when it came out on video, so I was like eight years old. My parents got it Blockbuster. I probably picked some kind of trash, and we both watched these movies to the same night. And they always wanted me to explore drama and uh, important environmental, thematic, social, political films when I was younger to get me a better idea of what kind of world I was getting into, right, as I was growing up. And this was one of those movies that really stuck with me thematically in the sense of, poaching and environmental protection and protection, protecting endangered species. When I was a kid, I really didn't care about the drama, the romance. For me, Sigourney Weaver was Dana Barrett from Ghostbusters. Like that's my understanding at that age. And then I saw it maybe like one more time, a couple years later, maybe on cable with my mom or something. And again, the things that stick with you as a child when you watch this movie are the things that happen to the gorillas, both good and bad. You know, the the majesty of these creatures, the respect of how they brought them to the screen with both practical creature effects intermixed with, you know, real wildlife photography and cinematography. Yeah, all that really stuck with me. And again, I really didn't care about the side stories or the actual dramatic interpretation of Diane Fossey's journey through this thing. And so when you brought this film to my attention uh, again for this, for this episode, 
it made me excited to go revisit this because I really have not seen this movie in probably 30 years. I went to my local DVD movie exchange, found a Blu-ray copy for five bucks. I'm like, all right, let's watch this. Put it on the big screen. And yeah, man, it's, it's a sight to behold. And it's got an amazing performance by Sigourney Weaver. And I'm going to get into it a little bit further in this episode as we start really talking about our, our view on this film and the view of the critiques of Siskel and Ebert on this one. But I, I really find myself agreeing with them more than I usually do on this particular uh, critique. Yeah, and we both saw it when we were kids. And this is a more of a traumatic film when you watch it as a kid. I mean, as kids, we're used to talking animals. We're used to uh, Benji or whatever it may be. And then we have a movie like this that gets into the very raw nitty gritty of what the real world is um, when it comes to how we treat animals in other countries and what the endangerment to those animals are. And to me, this one affected me as a kid. And it's one that I've always wanted to revisit but it's hard for me because I remember the way I felt when I first saw this as a kid, and I felt horrible. This is a movie that you see not only humans in danger, but an, an, almost an uncertainty when mm -hmm. it comes to the outcome of the humans and the animals. So we want to root for these animals, and we want to ensure that nothing happens to the humans, but it's almost like confusion, um, mental state for me when I watched it. I don't know these new feelings coming out of, who I want to root for, or what's going to happen. So to me, it was a little traumatic, but it's an important film at the same time. And you're right, we're going to get into a lot of the nitty gritties of it, but this isn't a pleasant movie. It's not a happy ending, no. um, but it does raise a lot of questions. And this is one of those movies I find very important when it comes to uh, how it's viewed and what the messaging is and why cinema is important when it comes to messaging, not just quality as well. Well, you know, this also is something that I recognized in myself rewatching this movie. It stirred up a lot of memories from other films that I saw as a kid, maybe a little bit too young, but definitely old enough to understand the fear, or at least for me, of isolation in nature. You know, so watching this film, it took me back to two other films that I grew up with with my dad, one was John Borman's uh, Emerald Forest with Powers Booth, where his son gets you know lost and essentially kidnapped by an Amazonian tribe, and he goes look looking for him like a decade later, and everything's just out in the jungle. It's isolated. It's nature. It's the you know absolute lack of technology or any kind of industry. And I just remember thinking, oh my god, I'm never gonna stray from the path when I go hiking with my parents because I don't want to get lost in the woods. I don't want to be isolated in nature with who knows what kind of animals or dangers or creatures or natives. You know, that really scared me. The other film, too, and this is completely <laughs> on the other side of the spectrum, is the film Band of the Hand from 1985, I think. Uh, it uh, wasn't directed, but it was produced by Michael Mann, where these juvenile delinquents are taken out to the middle of the Everglades, and they are kind of trained to be survivalists and then like a 21 Jump Street kind of thing brought back into Miami to fight drug traffickers. Like the idea of being lost in the Everglades and having to eat bugs and snakes and things like that really, really somehow scared me and like made me an urbanite for the rest of my life. I would say that those two films, and I got to say this film, that's what shook the memories up in me is like, 
her character going just into the absolute wilderness of the Congo and not speaking the language and having to rely on the natives and the trackers who, as we learn early on, aren't 100% reliable, but she's doing it for the passion of, you know, learning how to communicate and, and interact with these apes. I never really knew like the story of Diane Fossey until we watched this movie. And then I went and Googled it. And that's going to kind of blend into my critique of, of the film before we get into the Siskel and Ebert portion. But yeah, that same memory was resonated, especially when we start seeing these animals in danger. And when you're a kid and when you're younger watching this, you don't have the empathy with the poachers on why they're doing it and what kind of uh, business and what kind of industry these these creatures actually provide for the poor people of the Congo and who's actually paying the money. All that was lost on me as a kid. And now that I you know, can understand what the story is, it changes my view of this film, but it doesn't change my opinion of what makes this film problematic for me. And we can get into that, I'm sure, right now. <laughs> yeah, and I think... When we look at the movie, like there's a scene where you just see the monkey's hand and right. we don't know why. And that's very traumatic. But I, you bring up a really good point on seclusion is this is a fear with all kids. Nobody wants to get lost, especially in, in the jungle. Right. That's a natural fear. And then you have nobody to save. You, you don't have the hero animal coming to find you. You only have one element, which is just pure danger. There's no real success story to this when it comes to seeing it through a child's eyes, right? Right. But but yeah, let's get let's get just jump right into it. Okay, so here's my first thing is like I honestly can say that this is a great looking film and it is a very well-made film. Everyone that was hired to do the job they were hired to do, I think did it to the best of their ability. The performances of everyone are on point, specifically Sigourney Weaver. I mean, this is, to me, her like pièce de résistance performance of the 80s. It's the one that really showed her dramatic chops. We'd seen lots of other performances of her that really grabbed us, but this was like her moment to shine as like a dramatic character, not an action hero from Aliens, you know, not the, the love interest, let's say, the or the boss in Working Girl. You know, this is a different... Sigourney Weaver. This is the, the dramatic Sigourney Weaver. Michael Apted. I think he's a very talented director. I like most of his work. I, I'm a fond of most of his work. The the 7-Up series, 100%. You know, this is a documentary guy who bled into the world of narrative storytelling and film. And I think it really shows in a film like this where he has a pride of being a documentarian. And it shows in how he portrays these type of people who are there documenting nature documenting what's going on in the Congo. Um, but he also did make my second least favorite Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough. But, you know, hey, a paycheck is a paycheck. When it comes to the script by Anna Hamilton Phelan, now she wrote Mask for Bogdanovich, which gave Cher her Oscar. She wrote Girl Interrupted, which is one of my favorite movies from 1999. And there's a long list of movies from 1999. You can definitely see her DNA in this movie because if there's one thing that I think this movie does do injustice to Weaver's performance is that it sterilizes 
the actual mental and physical problems that the real Diane Fossey had. I feel that if we were to go into the real story of her and how kind of insane she was and how seriously she took this and the length she went to protect these animals, it's almost like a somewhat villainous story in a sense, but they sanitize it for the sake of it being a Hollywood production because they want you to feel emotionally connected to this character. They can't make her out to be kind of the loony that she really was. They put little snippets in there, like when she's the witch of the forest and stuff, but you can tell that this movie has been heavily sanitized and sterilized by a studio because it wants the Oscars, it wants the box office, and I think that robs us, the audience, of a potential amazing movie and amazing performance if it was just daring enough to go there. That's my biggest issue with the film. Yeah, and the first thing I want to say is the cinematography is, you started off with it, it is amazing. It takes Absolutely. us on that journey. And by, I think, cinematographer John Seal, who did Dead Poets Society and uh, Mad Max Fury Road, I believe, he has a way of capturing that pure environment to support the characters. And Sigourney Weaver, when we place her in this environment, it's, to me, one of her best performances. And I think this was the right movie for her because yeah. she was in between Aliens, Ghostbusters, and then after or Aliens. Uh, but everything in between was mediocre. And this was a real role to really have her challenge her range. Mm -hmm. And she takes advantage of every single moment. And we can see those close-up shots. Anytime she, were, she would react to one of the gorillas on screen, it was just pure joy. It's almost like seeing a dinosaur for the first time in Jurassic Park. <laughs> but this right. is her reaction to the utter amazement each and every day she's with these animals. So the performance by Sigourney Reaver is bar none, one of the best performances that I just appreciate about Sigourney Weaver in this. It was a right right choice. Um, but also the music score. The mm. music score in this environment is so subtle, but it's so beautiful to actually match that environment. All these backstage cinematographers, composers, all work together to create this environment, which really support it. And we're going to get into it, but I think that's one thing that's actually lacking from a, the reviews is how we have all this supporting the characters as they go through the motions of the danger of the elements, how every camera shot actually matters from the gorilla attacks. There's a lot to this that really support the uh, cast as they give outstanding performances. Um, but it's all that utter danger that the, the cast really reacts to with these animals and that, and the technical achievements of the gorillas they say it in the both of them say it in the review of they can't tell what's real and what's fake. That's right. the fantastic job that they do with it. No, I agree a hundred percent, and I will be bringing another movie dealing with uh, apes from the eighties further down the road. We haven't put it into our list yet, but it's coming. Trust me. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing is like this is a technical wonder. I will I will not bat an eye at that. And I think that is one of the hard parts for me of like being a, uh, a, a reviewer or a critic like yourself is that I do want to give credit to films that have outstanding technical prowess that aren't necessarily supported by what we're seeing on screen, whether it's performance wise, 
script wise or director wise. And we've seen lots of films like that. They just don't feel like they gel. And this is one of those movies where it's usually the opposite for me. Usually it's the script and the story that gels well. And it leaves me longing for a better performance or it leaves me longing for a better technical uh, ingenuity to the film. And this one is completely opposite. Like I said, all of those technical aspects and the performances and the direction all work for me. For me, it is the story. And I'm not even going to blame the screenwriter. I'm sure she's doing the best that she can trying to adapt a story that is about a person that wasn't necessarily likable. And part of that's on me. Part of that's on me doing the research before I went and revisited this movie of like, okay, well, let me read up more about Diane Fossey. And then when I realized how sterilized the story really is, that was on me bringing, you know, research that I had done for this project into my viewing experience. I should have left that for after. But either way, I think it would have brought me to the same conclusion. This movie, it feels dangerous, but it plays it safe. It even plays it safe with the finale where, you know, spoilers, I guess you could say, I think everyone knows, anyone that knows anything about Diane Fossey, she was brutally murdered, supposedly by poachers. There's lots of theories to that. Something that she was, you know, murdered by her own crew, her own staff, uh, people that were hired by the wealthy businessmen who were funding this poaching industry. Who knows, really? It's still an, an unsolved mystery. It's a cold case. But even that, I felt, should have been more dangerous. Even that moment felt sanitized for me. And if you really want to get me with your drama, you gotta hurt me. Dallas Buyers Club hurts me. You got me with that movie. Bad Education, you got me with that movie. Midnight Express, you're going to hurt me with that movie. Again, this movie feels like it's tiptoeing around the pain of these people, the pain of these tribes, and the pain of these creatures. Like It, it really, to me, now that I watch this, feels like this is more of a trophy piece of a film than it is a cinematic achievement. And I'm going to say, I'm going to blame the studio and the producers because I feel that everyone on the technical and the filmmaking aspect came to do a job and it feels like there was a restraint on what they were allowed to do. I really get that feeling when I watch this. And I've watched it twice since we decided to do it. Yeah, I agree. Because there is a lot of graphic nature to this, but at times there seems to be more. And when we get to the love scene, and I think I think it was Ebert that said it in his review, I think it was unnecessary because there's a lot of moments we could have been focused on a lot of the raw material of, of Fosse. There's yeah. a lot of elements of the community. At times, I, to me, I think that Fosse was too focused on um, without getting a lot of the reaction from the people around her to see kind of the progression of her, I want to call it insanity, yeah, But we get to that final, some of the third act, I believe, where we have those college students come in and we see the prime example of her peak of insanity. And I think they could have gotten out way further with that, even though it was a pretty emotionally graphic scene. But I think the setup to it should have been a lot more graphic and a lot more intense. And I think the written dialogue to really demonstrate the frustration with Fosse and these animals should have been more present. I think the love story prior to that 
held that rawness back and it kind of made it a little bit tame. And I didn't think it was necessary. I would have rather had an all in moment with the studios going in and giving prime examples of the insanity or what else transpired because there had to be more with the human interactions with just the graphic animal scenes. There had to be more conflict with the human actors to lead up to the, uh, the fate of Fosse. And that's what I think is really missing from the movie is that pure human to human conflict. Even though the movie's about apes, we should have taken a step back and really focused on that to really have that payoff feel real and have that emotional reaction to it. Because by the time we get to the end, even though we know we should have a passion and emotion towards Fosse, I felt a little cheated because I wanted a bigger buildup to it. And I wanted to see what that community was really reacting to with her insanity. A hundred percent agree. And now it's my turn to kind of play devil's advocate to this because we have to remember that we are, you know, millennials, essentially elder millennials. We grew up watching films like City of God. We grew up watching films that were not afraid to uh, shake you emotionally and show you things and people doing things that were shied away from in cinema for many, many years. Remember, this is a prestige picture. This is a prestige studio picture. So as much as I know I want them to go that direction, this is 1988. No one's going that direction except for like you know, Soviet filmmaking, East European filmmaking, and no one's seeing those movies unless it's in an art house theater. If you're wanting your money, if you're wanting your statuettes, you've got to make a palatable film. And that's where I'm talking about the sanitization of the studio to make this a more palatable film. That is a frustration for me because you do hear stories, especially like, you know, Warren Beatty when he was making Reds, you know, getting all this flack. You can't do this. You can't make communism seem kind of right. It's not the right era for that. You know, it's one of those things where like studios did not want filmmakers to make the films that were going to emotionally shock people. So I, I get it. It doesn't make it a bad movie, but you're, you and I are speaking the same language. And I think Siskel is saying the same thing, but he's not using the reasoning that we are like, I don't think that he is using his argument or his words well enough and we're going to get into it about the love story. You just mentioned it. The love story seems so unnecessary, but it also for 1988 seems so practical of a tool to get people to sit through your movie about gorillas. You know, it's an interesting thing. We're on that time frame of the 80s where people aren't 100% bought into environmentalism. We're at pro, pro, pro capitalism right now. So I get it. You're going to have to bring some candy in for people to sit and watch your movie and feel entertained. And that's, I think my biggest issue with the Brian Brown character, and it's not the performance. I've always liked this dude in in pretty much anything, but it feels like a character that's so just force fed into the narrative just to make her seem a little bit more likable. Like, okay, someone out there wants to have an emotional and physical connection. Someone wants to have sex with this woman. You know, you have to have some kind of attraction to keep your audience connected in 1988. And that's what it is. For me, though, watching it as a modern day film viewer, it seems like such a cheap move and such a lazy narrative tactic. I 
compared it when I watched it the second time to Margot Robbie's character in Bombshell. You know, we're just going to create an imaginary character that's an amalgamation of all the things that have happened to people in this story. Well, that's what this guy is. This guy is an amalgamation of photographers, maybe reporters or journalists that came in and talked to her. Maybe she had an emotional connection with, maybe she didn't, but we're going to create this, this putty figure of a character just to kind of keep that second act from getting too sluggish. And I don't want to sound pretentious. That works on a lot of just Saturday night movie going crowds. But for people like you and me that watch and talk about movies on a daily basis, we can see the attempt to pull the sleight of hand on us when it comes to how this film is being presented. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete romance novel. because, And it's always a photographer that's the good-looking, <laughs> rugged guy. Like, it Doesn't seems hurt like that he's Australian. <laughs> yeah, should be in a completely different movie. But yeah, the 80s, I can see it. It's to put seats in, I get it. Um, it's recycled, it's overdone. It's uh, kind of piques the interest of being secluded in the jungle with a strapping Australian photographer. It, it's cliche, it's cheesy. And to me, I just wish they would have at least utilized this for something more than just a cheap shot at some passionate, romantic secluded fantasy that just mm -hmm. just seems like you said completely thrown in and it's one of those to if we watch it now um, again to your point it doesn't feel natural it just feels silly yeah and the only thing i'm grateful for is that he he didn't have a lot of screen time so again we get that forced feeling from it because of that because there wasn't a real element to him being there um, but it was just a kind of a waste of screen time. It kind of was. And then, like I said, it's perfect for the 80s. If this was a 90s film, let's say if this was a 98 or 99 film, that character would have turned out to have been a figment of her imagination, right? Like someone who she imagines in her bathtub after she has a long day with gorillas and fighting poachers. And at the end, you find out he's not real. And it's like, oh my God, mind fuck. Like that would be the 90s version of it. And I think I like 2000 that idea above. <laughs> yeah, me too. And then 2000 above, they would make it more like a constant gardener, city of God type thing where it's like, oh shit, people are animals that speak. You know, that's really kind of what it is. Um, we have to talk about some of these side characters though, because the side characters, in my opinion, are one of the things that actually saves this movie from being too cliche. We got to talk about John Omiria Mulawi as Sembagare who is her tracker and essentially friend throughout this whole thing. It's another imaginary character that's an amalgamation of people that worked with her. But, I mean, you got to have the sidekick, right? you got to have someone that can portray the, the subtle humanity of a person who's like kind of losing her mind and her disassociation with, with the world and culture and society by being in the Congo with these apes and studying them. But it takes a very special person to do that. And most of those people aren't very likable. So bringing in Sebagare is the way that I think is brilliantly put into the script to help make it a dynamic duo. And that dynamic duo, like very, unless she is on screen with Brian Brown, she almost is always sharing the screen with Sebagare. And I think that's crucial for us to, you know, understand the more human side of her, where this is a guy who's a native. 
He's from there. He understands what these poachers are doing. He understands why. He's pointing her in the right directions for the most part. Uh, it's what keeps us from, you know, kind of falling into this trap of like, okay, so why is she really there? Is she there to study apes or is she there just to escape society? And that is like the humanity that he brings to that great character. Like I said, Brian Brown's character, the guy that plays Leaky, you know, everyone that kind of comes in develops really good performances, really good narrative building because we know that once we're in that second act, we're with just in the jungle with her and these apes. And that's hard to keep together. So you've got to really bring in a good narrative structure to start off the movie with before it just throws you in the jungle. Yeah. We look at the sidekick character here, and this was his first, I think, and only movie. Yeah. And when it comes to character motivation on him, I think this is where it's smart directing because we have a lot of smart uh, camera angles. When Sigourney Weaver smiles, he smiles almost every single time. It's mm-hmm. a complimentary to get the engagement from the audience. And I think it's smart because he does have a, a sweetness to him when he comes to support. And you can see with his body language, especially when we get into the third and act to the climax, that we have this doubt in his face where right. he hasn't acted before. And this utilization of his body language is absolutely spot on. Yeah. You know, it reminded me very much as um, the performance from Hang Nyor in the killing fields. You know, he was a native who stole the show in that movie and he had a very tragic death because of it. But this was a guy that made you feel like you were actually there. It gave you your passport to this country, to this culture without feeling like it was manufactured by Hollywood, you know? And that's what I like about that. Cause it's very easy to, let's say, throw a Morgan Freeman in there. It's very easy to throw a contemporary actor, throw on a faux African accent, but you're not watching that culture through that character. You're watching that actor portray it. So like you said, smart casting, smart directing by having someone that feels like they belong there bring some credibility to this movie because like I said, even, even when the poachers show up, I have a really big problem with that too, because they show up again, menacing, but there's times where I feel like it's the jets and the sharks showing up to fight each other. Like they just kind of pop up out of nowhere. And I'm sorry, in most cases there'd be bloodshed no matter what, but that doesn't really work with what the story's trying to tell. So that's again like the credibility of the movie is what loses me. How about we talk about technical aspects though? Like the Rick Baker effects in this movie are absolutely mind blowing. The fact that, I mean, we've seen so called perfect CGI representation of apes in movies, and nothing, in my opinion, will ever be practical effects, especially the way Rick Baker does them. I felt like I was not watching a man in a suit at all in any of these movies, in any of these moments of this movie. And to the fact that this is 1988 and we still haven't taken that lesson that this is the way to do it and not come off as, as gimmicky and stagey. Like this is the movie that, okay, effects have reached a new level with this. And sometimes I wonder if that is what outweighed the, the movie itself because People talk about these effects to this day, even though they don't talk about 
the performance or what we've been talking about movie wise, I still hear, oh yeah, the the ape makeup and gorillas in the mist. I hear it all the time when we talk about practical effects. So maybe they were too good. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think you know my thoughts on practical effects. They hold up better than CGI. There's more practical effects that I've seen that still hold up today than CGI from 10, 20 years ago. Um, but before the rewatch, I didn't do any research. I even held off on revisiting the review of Siskel and Ebert. And to, even watching it, there I couldn't tell. I believed that they were gorillas and all of them were real. I believe Sigourney Weaver sat next to a gorilla the entire movie. So yeah. there is nothing to signify that there was anything special effects wise other than smart camera movements but going back because i watched it a second time after researching it and i tried to find a defect in the visuals and i couldn't i could it was absolutely flawless and this is what the magic is when it comes to special effects like this is we even though cgi can be cheaper practical is more effective in my opinion in a lot of these cases and in a movie like this where you have to involve the environment the only way to do it is to have practical effects to be in that environment you cannot convince me with cgi that it's going to be more believable than what we got in the 80s with something like this that uses absolute 100 percent practical effects yeah, agreed and it's funny because like you hear Apted and Baker talk about it that they were not satisfied with using the baby chimpanzees made up to be baby gorillas. I'm sorry. I, I was fine with it. I didn't see it. You know, it, it worked for me. And I've just watched a few movies where, you know, they painted a chimpanzee uh, black. Oh, no, they painted a orangutan black to play a chimpanzee. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, so they, they were they were fantastic doing that. Um, no, no problems with uh, any of that there. And again, like I, I still think that maybe the quality of those effects and the prestige and how much people talk about it to this day might outweigh the, the movie's uh, view at this point. Yeah, and I, I would hope that wouldn't be the case because there are a lot of elements that do work, but here's the plus of the technical effects of movies that get word of mouth is that people will watch it, people will revisit it. Um, if a practical effects are that good, then people will give a movie a chance because a lot of people are attracted to just watching movie for watching the effects, unfortunately, but right. people, there are people out there, but this one I think hasn't gotten a lot of the movement over the last, what, 30 years, um, to actually deserve like a rewatch for this one, which I think going back to it, there is a lot to learn from the effects and the integration of effects and environment. That could be a whole topic on film of how we integrate either CGI or practical and when to use it. Right. If you were in film school, this would be the prime example something of so simplicity of interacting with your environment using effects. So this one would be my go-to on how to utilize an environment and actually add on special effects instead of using computers. 100%. Well, let's hear what the guys themselves had to say. Gorillas in the Mist is one of the most highly touted movies of the new fall season, but I was not impressed. Of course, I was somewhat moved by the sight of the wild apes, 
but I'm mesmerized watching The Apes in the Zoo, too. The movie is based on the true story of Diane Fossey, an anthropology student who in the mid-60s volunteered to study the great wild apes for Professor Lewis Leakey. She became much more than his helper, though. She was able to get close to the apes like no scientist had ever done before. At first in Africa, with a guide, Fossey, played by Sigourney Weaver, doesn't know what to expect from the apes. So he kind of lays it out right from the beginning that... I don't know. It's funny because he goes back around at the tail end, which we'll get to in a second, kind of praising the effects. But he also has another opinion about it that I'm really not too fond of. But again, this is Cisco leading off with the visual um, effectiveness of what the movie did for him. You know, I want to say that, okay, if he would have disliked this movie as much as he says he did, he wouldn't have attacked the best part of the movie to start his critique off with. You know, he could have gone after the the idea of, okay, this is a very highly fantasized version of a story of a woman who we're not going to say she wasn't great, but she definitely had a lot of flaws, a lot of issues, a lot of controversy behind, and here we are doing a very sanitized version of that. He doesn't say that. Instead, he attacks, first of all, oh yeah, a bunch of apes in the jungle, and I like seeing apes at the zoo too. Again, it's that hit piece kind of mentality when you're a, a high-profile film critic. I get it. But at the same time, that's what kind of loses some credibility with me in the overall beginning of that critique. Yeah. Well, with Gene Siskel, it's, he goes off of pure feeling. Uh, if, a, if a movie seems like it just makes you feel icky or just bad at the end of it, it seems to go more towards the negative when it comes to the moral messaging of it. And... When he starts off with a positive, like the practical effects or what what have you, that is almost seen as that's the best piece of it. But the rest of it just made me feel horrible. I didn't really buy it. And we find all these negative aspects about it. But this, like I said earlier, this isn't a movie that makes no. you feel good. Um, and Siskel tends to lean more towards the negative side when it comes to movies right. like that. It's, it's a controversial term, but... There's a podcast I've been listening to for years that they have kind of a, a genre that they've coined for movies like this. They call them white bummer movies, as in something terrible <laughs> happens to the white person, usually a female. It's going to make you cry and it's going to win an Oscar. So they're like, OK, the blind side, white bummer movie, you know, Aaron Brockovich, white bummer movie. Gorillas in the Mist, yeah, they play it as a white bummer movie. I get it. So with the benefit of satire being so prevalent in both yours and my podcast, it's it's kind of easy to say, all right, we can be satirical about this review, but he's not being satirical. He's being serious. Now, they kind of turn it around a little bit when they come back to the end once uh, Roger gets involved. You may have read all the publicity about how dangerous it was for her to get close to them. But that matters really not a whit while we watch the movie. The plain fact is the film hedges its bets with that cornball love story, or at least a standard love story, and the ape footage is really less than I expected it to be. The majesty of nature is not there, at least not there as much as I thought it would be, and Diane Fossey's achievement, consequently, seems less than I suspect it really was. So that's the part that bugs me, is the fact that, okay, he really just wanted to come in. What was he expecting? Planet of the Apes? You know, he was expecting nonstop ape action. 
this is a movie about Diane Fossey. The movie is called Gorillas in the Mist, and there's a subtitle that comes in under the main title card, The Diane Fossey Story. It's her story, and we see lots of apes, and we see lots of examples that are, inter like you said, seamlessly intercut practical effects with live-action effects. And he starts off with his review of saying, oh, yeah, I like seeing apes in the zoo, being satirical and kind of sarcastic about it. But then his first major complaint is, oh, well, there weren't as many apes as I thought there were going to be. Again, that's where I feel it's like a poorly thought out argument of why you don't think this movie works. However, I agree with him 100% about the cornball love story because that is both yours and my least favorite part of this movie. Well, and we got to look at the challenge of this movie because there's a lot on the table to balance this out in two hours. So obviously we don't want a majority of uh, gorillas. It, again, to your point, it's focused on Fosse. When we start to go with a lot of these different elements, and I told, I said earlier I wanted more of the, the villagers, the uh, college students. There's a lot more I wanted too. But we have to recognize the runtime and how to make this movie really balance out. I think it had an appropriate amount of gorillas without just having her sit in the woods staring at the gorillas for another 20 minutes. We get the point. She studies gorillas. Right. What more do you need? If you want to see gorillas, go to the zoo, like you said. But this is a movie about an individual that studies gorillas. We saw enough to know what she's doing, so the story moves along. Review the movie as a story and an individual that it's meant for. Not to go right. see just animals. If you want to see that, go see the kids' movie like Benji. And then re review that, which wasn't a good review anyway. Well, but here's the thing, too, is that the whole point of the story is that the gorillas are not the enemy. The poachers are the enemy. The poaching industry is the enemy. He didn't even mention that. you know. So we're not supposed to be afraid of the gorillas. We're supposed to be afraid of what these social and economic disputes in the Congo we're doing to people. There were mass genocides going on. There's mass poaching and extinction going on. Not even mentioned. And, and, and if if I want to be a sarcastic back to him, I can say, hey, Jurassic Park had less than eight minutes of dinosaurs in its entire runtime. So are you going to complain about Jurassic Park not having enough dinosaurs and being called Jurassic Park? Well, Gene, I was also disappointed in the film, but I would recommend it because I do feel that what is there is interesting to watch, especially the ape footage. And by the way, they weren't all apes. Some of the apes One or ape. parts of apes were actually special effects by I Rick know, Baker. And, I, yeah. and they were so effective that you couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't. Of course, if you know that, the problem is you're trying to look around and figure out which well, one is real. I didn't, it didn't bother me. What did uh, bother me was the fact that the Diane Fossey story, of course, is a tragic one. She gradually becomes more and more cranky until finally she's obsessed and even insane, and then somebody murders her, and we don't know who that is. And that development of her personality seemed to me to be very abrupt. We have a scene where she's a little crazy. And why? Then, then a scene where she's crazier, okay. and then a scene where she's really nuts. Yes. And uh, if it's going to be a psychological study of Diane Fossey, then let's deal with that. If it's not, then let's make it into a natural story. Natural Guys, speak in my language. Yeah, I agree with 100% of what uh, Roger said in this. Um, the biggest thing that I took away from this was I 100% agree on the progression of the Fosse character. At one point, it does feel like a light switch where we feel like we needed another 15 minutes or so of just a couple other scenes to show that progression because there's no real prime examples except for her being cranky and then she's uh, ready to hang someone. I mean, right. there, it goes from zero to 100 pretty quick. 
um, during the second half of the movie where we don't see what led up to it. Yeah, the poachers, yeah, the uh, stress of protecting these animals. We can make those assumptions, but if we're making the assumption, then the filmmakers aren't doing a good job telling us. We're just assuming what her intent is or based on prior knowledge of this character uh, we are assuming. So if we knew nothing about Fosse walking into this movie, we would honestly have very little to connect the dots on why she's getting uh, more and more gradually insane yeah. to crazy. Yeah. So that point I 100% agree on, and we've already discussed the technical aspects of it. Uh, we've rewatched it. Yeah, we can tell a different, and it didn't bother either one of us. So I think this is a justified uh, synopsis of of his outlook on the movie because – there is a lot, and he does go more on the negative in his written review, where I didn't think reading the review, he was going to give it the review he did. Um, but at the end of the day, it's effective on giving in a reaction, and it's effective on taking us on a journey, as kind of what Roger hints at subtly. I think one of the things that I appreciate about Ebert when he talks about films like this is you can tell that they were both looking forward to this movie. They both wanted this movie to be impressive to them that they could give it a good score and get people to see it. You know, the disappointment that Ebert says is a hundred percent valid because it's the things that make it a little bit of a disappointment for me too. That's why I'm really in tune with what he is saying. And you can tell that once he starts making these valid points and arguments, Siskel kind of tries to chime in and he's like, oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, you had more to say, but you chose your spicy hit piece words instead. And now someone's bringing actual critique to the table and you've lost your moment. And that's one of the best things about this. We don't talk about this that, that often is when the show was the most entertaining is when they actually had good, solid, heated debates that it wasn't about hit words and hit piece catchphrases where they actually took the time to debate whether or not the film deserved a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And this could have been one of those moments. And I think because this was Siskel's piece to bring to the table, he dropped the ball in the setup and he let Roger walk away with all of the best talking points. Well, and I think it would have been a different factor if um, kind of what I touched on earlier, if Siskel really brought that emotion to the table of what other than what other than the technical aspects, what, how did it make him feel? What aspect did he feel it was lacking? Because at the end of the day, I think this did a fantastic job on getting a reaction, even though I think we both agree it could go further. But I think for what it right. is given the runtime and how much it has to balance, I think it does give an unclean feeling walking out of it. And that's one that would be an easy thing for a critic to really focus on in a review is to give that actual icky feeling of how the movie made you feel. If you're walking out of this movie feeling good, there's something wrong with you. And this one would have been the right. easiest piece for him to really go after and say, I just didn't like the way it made me feel. And it didn't really give me any substance to make me feel that way. That would have been the most brilliant way for him to actually put it instead of just, Saw some monkeys, didn't get enough monkeys. Weren't enough monkeys for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I'm going to go ahead and say that there is a very fine science to making a film not feel so overwhelmingly 
depressing and painful that you're going to walk out of the theater and tell your friends, don't go see it. You know, you push too hard for some people and they're not going to recommend it. I feel that this film, even though it has the flaws that you and I pointed out and that they pointed out as well, I feel for the 80s, the time it came out in and for the film it was trying to be, it really did find the right level of discomfort that was going to be provocative enough for people to talk about it and tell their friends to go see it and get it Academy Award nominations, you know. It, it, it found that right level of discomfort. You want to let the audience leave the theater feeling like they learned something, that they've been shooken up and they felt something, but you don't want them to go home and like cry about it for an hour because then they're not going to tell people to go see it. So as much as I hate that kind of studio interference, there are people who are doing their jobs well in this aspect when you look at it as a business, as we need box office, we need the statuettes, you know, we need that clout. So that's the, that's the hard balance, right, when we come to talking cinema because there's those of us that want to just only talk about it from an art standpoint and from a creative standpoint, and we neglect the fact that it actually is an industry and it is a business. And a lot of these ideas that we think are terrible ideas as film appreciators sometimes actually work on paper business-wise, and we just have to swallow it. I think that's one of the the examples that this movie portrays. Yeah, and that's something I would probably never admit because I'm too stubborn, but it's <laughs> one of those when you walk and this is the biggest thing when you walk out of a movie thinking this movie was no good is because of the feeling of it. Those are the best movies because they get a reaction. That's how you know the writing and all the elements worked is because you felt yeah. something walking out of the theater. You might not like the feeling, but you felt something. And it's hard to differentiate the two if, if you can't put it into words. Did you go see this movie? Yeah, it was horrible. I felt horrible afterwards. Good. That's what the movie wanted to do. That's a great film. Right. Um, and it's hard to separate the two, um, especially if you're so angry or you're expecting something going into the theater. There are countless times I've gone into the theater where they advertise a comedy and I walk out just feeling like the most depressed person piece of crap alive <laughs> so there's a when it comes to marketing on setting expectation to how you really feel it's hard to, it's easy to be angry at a studio for how they market a movie versus how you walk out feeling and that's where the confusion really gets into the uh, standard viewer of walking out if it's good or if it's not so now it comes the part where we're going to throw down our critiques of the critics and the reviewers. It's your episode. So we are doing the Justin Henson stars rating system. What do you rate your critic Roger Ebert's review of this film, Gorillas in the Mist? I think he did a great job because he touched on everything that I would have expected him to talk about um, with the exception of some of the background elements that help support everything. But he made a good point in one of his written in his written review of this is they could have gone sideways with this and made it a whodunit movie. And, I'm, right. and I'm glad they didn't. And he was glad they didn't because it opens up that question mark on if you didn't know the story. Are you going to go research it afterwards? And I think that did a great that was a great idea. And I think it was a great point from Roger to bring that up because that does show encouragement to see the movie because he writes his reviews almost more towards the negative side, but then he is mm -hmm. grateful for the 
ending result of it. So I think he did a great job in the summary of his review. He touched on everything. So I'm going to give him three stars on it. Yeah, I, I would have given him the same too. As for my boy, Gene Siskel, you know, I'm going to give him a two and a half there. I think that he had a lot more to say that he just chose his words poorly. He went after the obvious, which is something he's just known for doing. He's going to go after the ob- obvious, the obvious talking points, like the love story. I think it's kind of ridiculous thinking that he wanted more gorillas in the movie, but, you know, whatever. I think where he does gain some points for me, though, is that he wanted to like this movie. I don't think he went into this film like he would, let's say, a Pee Wee Herman movie or a Polly Shore movie with the idea of like, oh, this is a one-star movie that I'm walking into right now. He walked in there with the idea that he was going to be entertained by a great director, by a great actress, by an Oscar-winning screenwriter. I think that helps give me some more credibility towards his review. He just chose his words poorly. And it's not the worst review he's ever given, but I feel for a film like this, he should have had more talking points than the ones he delivered. Well, yeah, I mean, even to that, because you brought it up there, too, is there are so many creators and filmmakers involved in this in this film that have done some outstanding movies before um, uh, Gorillas in the Mist. So there is an expectation to it of getting more from it. And we've talked about this numerous times before where we set that expectation walking in and then you just set yourself up for failure because you want more. And I think you're a hundred percent right. I think um, he went in wanting to like this movie and he want, he set an expectation that wasn't realistic. And when you go towards the animals and you just focus on that, that's a sign of anger that, you don't know how to describe your review of it. So you're just going to take cheap shots at what the main draw of the movie is. Agreed. 100%. I'm so glad that you brought this film to the show because it, it was definitely one that I needed to revisit. I'm glad I bought it. I'll probably watch it again and, you know, watch it now with the intent to dissect it, to dissect the things I felt about it. Like, okay, where am I really seeing the studio interference maybe there's more shots of Sigourney Weaver on the cutting room floor displaying more dramatics and more character development that we just didn't get to see because it didn't make the movie flow the way a studio wanted to. That's why I like that third or fourth watch is I like to go back and see, all right, who fucked with this movie? And that's where I'm going to enjoy my next viewing for sure. You know, whoever fucked with that movie is going to be during the third act. That's where it starts to tumble. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) A hundred percent. Well, everyone, next week, tune into the show where it's my turn to bring a film and a review to the episode. We are going to be doing 1985's The Bride, directed by Frank Rodem, starring Sting, Jennifer Beals, Anthony Higgins, and the ever-enjoyable Clancy Brown as the Frankenstein monster. I'm looking forward to this conversation because this was a film that I definitely hadn't revisited in 20 years and actually had a very interesting time with. I can't wait to talk about it. In the meantime, if you want to know what our reviews were of Gorillas in the Mist, you can check out our letterbox reviews. I'm at the Cultworthy, Justin's the Movie Wire Show. Movie Wire Show. And you can find all of our socials on thecultworthy.com and at themoviewire.com. Justin, fantastic conversation. 
Can't wait to do next week's episode and just keep this train rolling. Love it. Can't wait for next week. It's going to be a good one. Everyone, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week on Back to the Balcony.